0: Will be in John chapter 12, is where we're gonna start. We're gonna finish up John chapter 12, which will be verses 44 down to verse 50. And then we're gonna do the unimaginable. We're gonna go into another chapter, right? And you may wonder, is that allowed? Well, it is. Can you have two chapters in one sermon? You can, because if you remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions when this was originally written. We get stigma about that. We, we see the chapter and we say, oh, we got to stop. Why do we stop? Those are man-made sections. A man put those chapters in there. The original letters did not have chapter and verse division. So we're going to continue and we're going to cover some ground today because there's a story that takes place. There's a scene that takes place um, in the upper room. And Uh, I want to get down to verse 11 if I can, because there's such uh, beauty in this story. So we're going to read several verses. So follow along with me, if you will. John chapter 12, verse 44, all the way down to verse 11 of chapter 13. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, But the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not uh, realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. What an amazing scene that we find here in the Last Supper. And before we start, let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful to be here today. And Father, we pray that by the working of the Holy Spirit, that you would give us the words to speak. And Father, that the truth that we find upon these pages, Lord, they would come alive in our soul. They would pierce our souls. And Father, our eyes would be open to your truth like never before. Father in these verses we see you. We see your work. We see the cross. We see the love that you have for those who are yours all the way to the end. So Father help us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you remember, we last week we talked about the judicial hardening that had come upon Israel as a nation so that they would not see the truth and that that would be the reason and the, the means to which that our Lord would be crucified. Remember, it said that if their hearts would have not been hardened then, and they would have seen the truth, and they would have not put to death the King of glory, the Lord of glory. But God, by His sovereign hand, judicially hardened the majority of Israel so that they could not see the truth to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had said in Isaiah chapter 6 which will bring about the death of Christ on the cross. And now here after that in verse 44 down to verse 50 to finish John chapter 12, we see Jesus restating a a common theme that has been woven all through the gospel according to John. He's going to recap a familiar theme that we should all be remembering of as we look back on the gospel according to John. And that theme and and this message that he's going to end this chapter with is very simple. I come from the Father. How many times have you heard that in the gospel according to John? The Father sent me. The Father sent his seal upon me. I'm the bread of life sent from the Father. I speak not of my own. I speak from the Father. This whole gospel account of John has had this under driving force that he is from the Father. Remember what the title son of man means. That's the title that he uses most frequently to describe himself. And the title Son of Man speaks of one who came from heaven and the one who then will ascend to heaven. So here Jesus, as he's giving this instruction, we find him repeat this theme. The Father has set his seal upon him. If you remember that, that's the Father has validated him. The Son is speaking on behalf of the Father. He's exegeting the Father. He's explaining the Father. And he's also making the invisible God visible. We find that in the work of the Son. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Because remember, the Son has been sent to show the Father, to speak on behalf of the Father. So believing in the Son means you believe in the one who sent him. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. He's the image of the invisible God. And we find that in John chapter 14 and in the next chapter that we'll get to. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So here, the one sent from the father speaks from the father is the representation of the father. So if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. He goes into verse 46 and says, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. He is light, and when he saves us, he transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. He's on the mission from the Father. His words are from the Father. The message is from the Father. So to reject the Son is to reject the Father. You cannot have the Father and not have the Son. This is a a vital, crucial, non-negotiable part of Christianity. If you don't believe in the Son, you don't have the Father. And what what was the ironic twist here is that these Pharisees and uh, these religious people claim to love God. They claim to be these followers of God, seekers of God, children of God, except for God in their flesh, they rejected. They rejected the one that the Father had sent, and by rejecting the one that the Father had sent, they rejected the God that they claimed that they were following and loving don't have the son, you don't have the father because the son is explaining the father, exegeting the father, speaking on behalf of the father. He's the representation of the father. And that's been a theme that's been all through John. And here Jesus just restates that again. And the words that he's spoken are life. Anyone who believes in that does have eternal life. And that's what we find in 1 John 5, verse 12. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. You don't believe in the Son, you don't have life. And that's the ending of John chapter 12. We've we've explained that, we've taught on that for months upon months. He is from the Father, you must believe in Him because His words are from the Father. And now we set our attention to chapter 13, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time today. Just to catch us up to where we're at, we are at the Last Supper here in John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, all the way leading up to the high priestly prayer in John 17, we find those chapters give us an account of these last few hours before Christ will be arrested and crucified. So we have several chapters here that we're going to cover in the following weeks and months that are, that are pointing us to that small upper room or that large upper room to where these events will take place hours before the death of Christ. What has happened up to this point? Well, how did we get here? We know at this time Judas has already struck his deal. We know that he's already made the, the deal for 30 pieces of silver, and now what he's doing is waiting for the opportune time to betray Christ. We find that in the other gospel accounts. John does not tell us that the deal has already been struck, But the other gospels will tell us after that Mary had anointed Christ with the perfume, then Judas went out and went to betray him. He struck the deal and now he's waiting for the opportune time to betray him. And that time will be here in this upper room. We find that they came to this upper room. The other gospels tell us how did we get to the upper room Well, Jesus commanded his disciples to go and they would enter the village or the town there. They would find someone carrying a pitcher of water. They would meet this man carrying the pitcher of the water. They would tell him that the Lord needs this room for the Passover, the house. They would follow this man to the house and then they would be led to a room to which this last supper would take place. This man carrying the pitcher of water would lead them to a large furnished upstairs area. So this is all the background of what's happening. Judas has made the deal. They have found this guy who showed him where the upper room, that the Lord wants this to take place. Now here we are in this intimate setting, in this upper room, hours before the death of Christ. We must think about this, that these men have followed Christ for over three years. <laughs> They have followed him. They have learned from him. He has taught them things. They have seen miracles. They have had laughs. They've had cries. They've had this whole personal experience with Christ for three years. And now they're in this upper room, moments away from that all being gone. We have to try to put ourselves into this story, to what these men would have been experiencing as this time with their Lord is nearing an end. So we find ourselves now in this upper room with these disciples and the Lord. Hours before his death, his time is nearing. And we come to chapter 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. They were gathered. This is the Passover. It's no mistake. Remember, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He would be the lamb that would be slain. They would all be gathering here for this meal in accordance with the Passover custom. He knew his hour had come. It is here that he would depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What do we find here? We find this specific saying that he loved those who were his own. And he loved them to the end. And you may say, well, why do you? It seems like every time that we gather, we talk about doctrines of grace and we talk about Reformed theology and we talk. Why? Because it's literally on every page of the Bible. Here he says he loved his own to the end. Who are his own? Well, in the immediate context, we talk about the disciples. But then we go a little step further because these verses that we hear of he loved his own who were in the world parallels some verses that we find in John chapter 17. Listen to what John 17 says in verses 1 through 3. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Who's the ones that have eternal life? All that the Father has given him. This is the prayer of the Son. He will go a little bit farther in that. And Perry, I'm not going to preach all John 17 today, but we could. That's his favorite chapter. What does he say after that? He says, I don't pray for all the world. Can you imagine that? Jesus not praying for all the world. He's praying for those whom the Father had given Him. Jesus is specifically praying a prayer for those whom the Father had given Him in John 17. He says, I don't pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you've given me. And all that you've given me out of the world, I've kept them all. Not one of them has fallen away except for the one that was predestined to eternal damnation, the son of perdition, Judas. And then he goes a little farther. And then he starts to pray for you and for me if you're a believer. Because here's the words of the Lord, the Son to the Father, minutes before he's captured and seized. He says, I don't pray for them only, talking about his disciples, but I pray for all who would believe. And listen to what he says, all that you've given me. And in John 17, verses 22 through 24, it says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you and me, that we may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. There's the love of the father upon the elect, the same love that he loves upon his son. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me Be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. You see, there's the love again. That the father loves the elect in the same love that he loves the son. And the elect are the same ones that the father has given to the son. And here Christ is under the shadow of the cross. And he says, all that you have given me, all that are mine, I've loved them to the end. My love has been constant and it has been towards them and it will be finally on display all the way to the end and that end is what? The cross. We find that the love of Christ upon those who are His is demonstrated the most beautifully on the cross. We're under the shadow of the cross in this upper room and He loved His own until the end. And that love is shown upon the cross. This is where he would lay his life down for the sheep. And we know that he would atone for those whom were his. He would die for those whom the father had given. If he would have died for everyone, then everyone's sin would be atoned and everyone would be in heaven. That's not the case. He loved his own until the end. this speaks of the particular redemption This speaks of those whom the Father had given. That is the love of of the cross shown. Here we see a doctrine of grace point in this verse. He loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Just stop and think about that for a second before we move on. That the eternal God loved you if you're his, His and you're a believer. He loved you all the way to the end. He didn't stop just short of the cross. He loved you to the end, all the way to the cross. He so loved you that he laid his life down for you. Let us not overlook that that huge, huge statement that we find in this verse. And during the supper, uh, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. We know that Matthew chapter 26 tells us that he's already struck the deal here. And we see that Judas would betray him so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And what's amazing here is that Judas and the devil had the same agenda. They hated Christ. Judas hated Christ. He did this in his own evil intentions, in his own evil heart, but under the sovereign hand of God. He was waiting for this time to betray Christ. And he did this to fulfill Scripture. Scripture. We find this scripture in Psalm 41, verse 9, and we'll get to this next week a little bit more, but here's the verse that he quotes in, that Judas would fulfill. It's Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. There's a lot of depth in that verse alone. We find that there was custom that to eat bread with someone was a sacred thing and of ultimate betrayal. To eat bread with someone and then betray them? was this ultimate sign of betrayal. And here, here Judas is eating bread with Christ and he would betray him. But that was to fulfill scripture. The prophecy of the Old Testament coming alive and being fulfilled in the new. And we find that in John 17, it says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you had given me. I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scripture will be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. Picture this scene, this intimate setting. His arrest, his crucifixion is near. He's loved his own to the end, except for in this, there is one who hates him. It's Judas Iscariot. And then we come to the beautiful part of this story. We come to the beauty of this verse or these verses. We watch him him as he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And how have we always seemed this to be? We say, well, this is showing Christ's humility. This is, the, this is the attitude that we're supposed to have toward others. We're supposed to have a servant's heart. We're supposed to be not proud, but we're supposed to serve others. And that's true. You're right. That's 100% true. But here's the thing, that's tonight. There's, an, there's a practical application of this verse, but it happens tonight. What if I told you that in this story, you find the cross. Would you be surprised in that? If, I, if we look at Jesus washing their feet, would you be surprised if I told you it's foreshadowing the cross? Would you be surprised if I told you it was pointing to his incarnation? Would you be surprised that it talks about the depths of those things in this scene that we find? Because it does. There's the the theological ramifications of this scene. And then there's the practical application toward us in this scene. Today we talk about the high theological thing that is pointing to Christ. And tonight we talk about the practical application to us. So let's look at it. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God... That speaks of His title as being the Son of Man. No one has ever ascended to the Father except for the one who descended first, that is the Son of Man. Being sent from the Father is how John chapter 12 ends. Being sent from the Father speaks of the incarnation. He says He knows now that His time is near as He's going to depart out of this world And he's going to go back to the father. And the immediate response after knowing that that time is near, we find, look what happens in verse 4. He got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. There's a lot in that. We'll come back to that in just a second. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the, the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And you say, well, what's the big deal here? Well, we have to understand what is in view here at this time. As they would walk on these dusty and dirty roads, their their feet would get dirty from the, the journeys that they would be on. And as they would enter a house, it would be customary that they would take water and they would wash the feet after they had traveled. But that job, That task of washing the the dirt off the feet was really, for the most part, reserved for the lowest of the low. It was reserved for the servant, it was reserved for the slave. And now Peter knows who he is. He's declared he's the Messiah. And now here comes Jesus, and he takes this form of a servant, he takes upon himself the role of a servant. And he begins to wash their feet. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You're the Messiah. How dare you stoop down and take on the form of a servant, the role of a servant to wash my feet. You remember back in the start of John, where John the Baptist says, the one who comes after me is before me. And his, the, the strap of his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. John the Baptist was right. He wasn't worthy to undo the strap of the sandal of God on earth. And now here Christ is taking the form of a servant and washing their feet. Why would he do this? The shadow of the cross is looming. The time is near. And now Christ knows that he's going back to the Father. He sets aside his garments and he assumes the role of the servant and he begins to wash their feet. Look what goes on to say. When Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do now you do not realize, or you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. This is twice that we have documentation that Peter really tried to rebuke Christ. Do you remember when Jesus had told him that he was going to die and he was going to suffer in Matthew 16, he takes him aside and rebukes him, and he says, "Get behind me, Satan! You don't have the things of God in mind." Here comes Peter again. Never. I know how meaningless the, or how how low this task is. Reserve for the servant. Never. You will never wash my feet, Lord. Well, let's see how Jesus responds to that. He says, "If I do not wash you." you have no part with me. And that's going to come back to mean everything. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And you say, what's all this about? Why does he take off his garments? Why does he assume the role of a servant? Why does he say that if he doesn't do this, they won't be clean? Because what you see again under the shadow of the cross is this last foreshadowing of the life of Christ in loving his own until the end. Can you think of a time where the eternal God took on the form of a servant? Maybe we read it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Having this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Let me me summarize that for you. Laid aside his glory of heaven, emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And how did he do that? What's, what's What's the result? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal God, who's the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth and all that there is in, the one who has no beginning, who has life in himself, the sovereign, holy, holy, holy God. When the fullness of time had come, he humbled himself and he took on flesh and he took on the form of a servant. He's the suffering servant, isn't he? That's what Isaiah 53 says he is. In the incarnation, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. And he was obedient to the father all the way to the end. And he was obedient even unto the point of death. Here you have the foreshadowing of the incarnation, the role of the servant that Jesus had taken upon himself, And that will be clearly seen as his obedience even to death on the cross. And you say, well, what's the point of the garments? Why did he lay his garments aside? Because you'll never imagine this. But there's an Old Testament book called Leviticus. There's a chapter in Leviticus that we call 16. And in that chapter, we find a type and a shadow pointing to what we just seen here today. Let me explain it to you, but still come to the type and shadow we do on this, okay? That the high priest had garments that they would wear. And those garments that were made for the high priest were made for beauty and for glory. They had the stones, they had color. People would know that it's the high priest because of the glory and the the beauty of the garment that the high priest would wear. And that would be the garments that he would wear except for a certain time in a certain day. And in Leviticus 16, we find that day which he would set aside those garments of glory and garments of beauty. And we find that being the day of atonement. And what would happen is this, the high priest would take off those garments of glory and he would have the white linen tunic and the undergarments that he would wear on this day because it would be on this day and only once a year that the high priest would make sacrifice to atone for the sin of the people. This is when they would have two goats and they would have one scapegoat that they would confess the sins of the people upon and then the goat would run out of, the, out of that area. symbolizing Him being the expiation for our sin or taking our sin away. But then there would be another goat that would be sacrificed, and this would be the goat that would represent the propitiation or the blood sacrifice or the atonement for sin. And as the high priest is performing these acts of sacrifice, he's not in the garments of glory. He's in these mild uh, linen tunics. He's laid that all aside to do this task. And he takes the blood from the goat. And he and he alone goes into the holy place of the the tabernacle in the temple. And then he goes behind the veil of the curtain into the holy of holies to where the Ark of the Covenant is, the mercy seat of God, the throne of God. And he takes that blood from that sacrifice and he begins to sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark. Again, while He's doing this task, He does not have His garments of glory on because His job is not yet done. And He will perform all these acts that are required on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sin of the people. And then when the job is done, Leviticus 16 tells us what He does. After He's made the sacrifice, after He's sprinkled the mercy seat, after it's all been done, Do you know what the high priest does? He picks up his garments of glory and he puts them back on. That's what we see in this story. We see the eternal God who left the glory of heaven in the incarnation. He left the glory of heaven. He became a servant unto the point of death. He has laid those clothes aside, if you will. He has come to do the work of the high priest on the cross. He loved his own until the end. And when that work was done, he was raised with a glorified body. He's ascended into heaven and he's picked up those garments of glory again. And he's reigning and ruling right now as we speak because his job was done. And here we are, moments from the cross in this amazing verse says that he took off his garments to wash their feet. He took off his garments, symbolizing his incarnation, symbolizing him being the suffering servant, symbolizing him doing the work that was required, which means the cross, obedient to death, even death on the cross. Here we see this is pointing to the servant role of Christ. And then we see all these objections. You're not going to wash my feet. That's the role of a slave. That's the role of a servant. And what does Jesus tell Peter? If I don't wash you, you're not with me. You're not part of me. You see, this washing, this this foot washing is a, a sign of cleansing. That's what it meant. It was to be clean. And maybe this verse You've heard in your life but it will mean something more as we look to the cross, as we look to him washing those there, washing us clean. We see Isaiah chapter one, verse 18 says, come now, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow, though they are like crimson, they will be like wool. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Let me just say this real quick. What separated the, per, the people from the outside court, the holy place, and the, the holy of holies? It was the veil. And what happened to Christ on the cross? When he was on the cross and he died, it says the veil was torn. That way is pointing to us having access to the holy place of God through the death of Christ. And here in this verse, we see that his flesh is referred to as the veil. Because as the veil was torn, so is his flesh. And as the veil was torn to give us access to the Father, his body being torn gives us access to the Father. Such beauty here. And since we have a great high priest, remember the high priestess who would take off the garments of glory on this day, the day of atonement, to atone for the sin of the people. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you realize it is the death of Christ? It is this servant who came who loved his own to the end. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it would be that cross that is the only hope that we have to be clean. That is our only hope of cleansing. And if he does not cleanse us, we have no part of him. That's what he tells Peter. Peter. If He does not cleanse you, if you are not clean by the blood of the Lamb, you do not place faith in the work of the cross and of the Son, you have no part with Him. That's the only way we can be clean. It is through His death upon the cross. The washing of the feet was for cleansing, and here under the shadow of the cross, His hour is at hand, and Jesus is foreshadowing His death, which will be required to cleanse those who are His. Man, do you see the beauty in this verse? I hate to tell us, we've missed it. We've cheapened it. Yes, it is to serve others and to have a humble heart. But what we see here is the life and the death of Christ. Moments away from his death. You realize that if he wouldn't have taken on the form of a servant and cleansed you, you would have no hope. And I would have no hope. You know, Taylor always says this. You look at the cross of Christ and you look who he got in return. The trade-off's not fair. I get him and he gets me? That didn't seem like a fair deal. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. That's not fair. You know who you are? How dare you think you're going to wash my feet? Let us contemplate the depths of this eternal God who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant for all who believe. That's unimaginable. But he had to do this because without it, no one is clean. Mm. And in verse 10, he says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. Here he speaks of Judas. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. We know that that is the case here. But he says something interesting that I think is to take note. when When... The Lord saves us and we're cleansed. We are cleansed forever, permanent. You don't lose the salvation. We don't have enough time to go through that whole process today. But scripture is clear. You don't lose your salvation. You are eternally secure because of the good shepherd, the good high priest, and the Holy Spirit doesn't lie, just to name a few. You don't lose it. Once he makes you clean, you're clean. But he says you may need to wash your feet again every now and then. What is he saying here? We walk through life. Remember in the, in this time they would walk and they would get dirty. We walk through life. And even though we're covered with the righteousness of Christ, even though our sin has been imputed to him and his righteousness has imputed to us and we stand holy and blameless before God because of the perfect work of Christ, the perfect work of this suffering servant, does that mean we're free from sin? Has anybody sinned this week? I've always heard this. Let me just say this. We're about done. I've always heard people say this. Well, yeah, you can lose your salvation. Well, let me just put this into perspective for you. We'll talk about that tonight when we talk about pride. But how prideful it is to think that you could lose it, but you would be good enough to keep it. Let me just give you a little something to think about. If you wonder how good we are in keeping all the laws and the commands of God and You can ask yourself, do you really think you could keep this? What is the first and greatest commandment that he gives us in the New Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Let me ask you a question. Have you done that today? Have you loved him with all your heart, all in your soul, and all of your mind, with 100% of all your being today at all? What about yesterday? Have you done that at any time in the last month? I know I haven't. Have you loved him with every fiber of your heart, your mind, your being, and your soul? Any in your life? Whoa, whoa, we got a problem. That's the first and greatest commandment. Do you know why we're saved eternally? Because of the work of the high priest. Because of his righteousness covering us. And all that the father has given him, he says, we'll be in glory. Let us stop and think. (laughs) If we could lose it, We all would. And to think you wouldn't. To think you can meet the, what is the the standard for heaven? Perfection. Now, if you tell me you can keep it, you've just lied and you've broken that. How dare we? Think in our own merit, in our own works, we could ever earn it or we could ever keep it. But it is through this one but we still walk in this world and we still sin and we get our feet dirty, if you will. Even though our body is clean, even though the righteousness of Christ is upon us, we still need to clean our feet off every now and then. As we walk through this life, we seek forgiveness from God as it it doesn't separate us from his love, but it separates us sometimes from our communion with him. When we have sin in our life, it separates us from communion with God. We run from God. We stay out of the word. When we have unresolved sin, it keeps us, From this great communication that we should have with God. And even though we're we're covered and we're clean as a whole, we still need to seek forgiveness for these sins that we have as we walk through this life. That's what he's talking about here. But not all of you are clean. And next week we find this heart wrenching scene where Judas will betray Christ. But not yet. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, but let's think about what this verse, these verses are telling us. How many times have you read John 13? And what you see is a foreshadowing of the cross. You see the incarnation. You see the one who took on the form of a servant, took off the garments of glory, became the suffering servant, fulfilled the role and the mission that he was sent to do as this suffering servant. And he loved his own all the way to the end. And he died for them. And those who are washed in his blood have part with him because now they're clean. Let us stop and think about that today. That he would take upon this role of a servant for those who are his. The sovereign God left his glory in heaven. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. It would be this death by this suffering servant that would cleanse all that were his. And after he completed his work, just like the high priest in the Old Testament, he put his garments of glory on and returned to the Father, to rule and reign. And as I was thinking about this, one song that I had sung a long, long time ago and so many times in my life, I began to, this song began to come in my mind. Laid his garments aside, the role of a servant. And why did he do it? To make them clean. And we would find that on the cross. So, the question arises today what can make us clean and what can wash our sin away? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words. Lord, we thank you for the depth and the beauty of this story. Lord, I pray you would forgive us for all the times that we have not put the weight and the significance upon your incarnation, or that we've overlooked that you became a servant, a suffering servant to live a perfect life and to die for those who were yours lord you left your garments of glory emptied yourself and came to your creation lord and that love is shown upon the cross because you loved those who were yours all the way to the end all the way to death you We're obedient even to death on a cross. And Lord, that is our only hope of cleansing. That is our only hope of being made white as snow. And Lord, if we are not cleansed in you, if you are not the one who's washed us, Lord, then we have no part of you. Lord, we find this in this story. We find this in this scene. And Lord, let us think about that. Let our hearts be pierced with that thought. Let our souls be reminded and and to see the depths of your your work. Lord, for those of us who are clean, we owe that to you. And Lord, we pray that we would be convicted of every sin that we commit, Lord, that it would break us to our hearts, that the thought of sinning against you would be more than we could take. And Lord, that we would ask for forgiveness. We would walk in sanctification as we would cleanse our feet as we walk through this life. Lord, I am overwhelmed by your truth and the beauty of your word. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And in Jesus' name, suffering servant, we pray. Amen.